Taking your Bible, turn with me to Genesis uh, 15. Genesis 15, we are continuing and finishing what we began last Sunday. Uh, a little off-topic passage in Genesis 15 where we are seeing, by God's grace, a true testimony to what is saving faith, and today, to what is the assurance of faith. <clears throat> Our reading is Genesis 15, 7 through 21. If you are hearing only this half of the preaching of this chapter, the previous sermon from last week is available online. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we come before you now, Lord, confessing our great need to hear your word with a believing heart, with an understanding mind, with a soft and pliable will. Oh, gracious Lord, this is not our natural starting point, but in Christ, this is our true nature. Lord, your spirit indeed has been given to us so that we might prosper and bloom and flower in these very graces that we have confessed needing. Oh, so Lord, tend to us as a gardener. Let the rain of your grace fall gently upon us. Let the sunshine of your spirit shine mightily upon us. Draw up and into us and from us the new life that belongs to us in your Son. And grant, O Lord, your word to be a mighty nutrient in the soil of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 15, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, the dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, 
the Cademanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. God's word. Beloved, the great need of your soul is assurance from God that you will indeed partake of the new creation. When you are in possession of this assurance that you will indeed partake in the new creation, when it is fresh, when it is lively with you, your soul will flourish and thrive and rise in the strength of the Holy Spirit as you glory in Jesus Christ. Now, your outward life may at the same time be a mess. Your outward life may be marked by illness, poverty, conflict, loneliness, imminent death. After all, in this life, you are called to suffer with Christ. But it can go quite well at the same time with your soul. In fact, your inner life will be enlarged whenever you are assured from God that nothing can keep you from partaking in the new creation. And it is not just your soul that will partake. Your body will too. The whole you, as the Lord said through Isaiah the prophet, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Isaiah 65, 17. These are the very words John the Apostle heard when he saw in his apocalyptic vision the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. A loud voice said, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. Then he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Revelation 21, 4. The day is coming when the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That future restoration of all things belongs to the children of God. It is terrestrial and embodied and yet wonderfully new, a new creation. And to be firmly persuaded by God that this new creation belongs to you in Jesus Christ and nothing will keep you from having it, That infallible persuasion is the assurance of faith. And when you have that assurance, while you have it, your heart will be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Your love and your thankfulness to God will abound. Your cheerfulness in the duties of obedience will thrive. And your old ways of looseness your old ways of looseness in the things of God will give way to a new firmness and constancy. Those are all the fruits that come from the assurance of faith. Now, this blessing of assurance is exactly what God is giving to Abram 
in Genesis 15, 7 through 21. God is giving Abram assurance that he and his offspring will partake in the new creation. It is not faith that God is giving here in our passage. That gift was already given, see verse 6. It is not the righteousness of Christ that God is giving here. That gift has already been given, see verse 6. It is not justification that God is giving here. That gift has already been given, see verse 6. You're right. (laughs) In the passage right before us today, 7 through 21, it is not the first things that God is giving. It is this thing, assurance, the assurance of faith, which means the assurance of faith is not identical to faith. As the Westminster Confession rightly says, assurance does not belong to the essence of faith. You can have true saving faith, like Abram in verse 6, but not always have strong assurance of faith, like Abram in verse 8. This is the reason for his question there in verse 8. O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, you might want to step up and answer Abram and say, isn't God's word enough? But the Lord is not so stingy, though that would be a true thing to say. The word of God is always enough. And this is already confirmed to us in verse 6, that Abram has believed the word of God, and God has counted it to him as righteousness. But Abram's question in verse 8 is a reminder to us that once saving faith reaches out and lays hold of the objective divinity of a favorable God, that same faith immediately wants more and immediately needs to be fanned like a flame in the assurance of faith, which leads to the strengthening of faith. So Abram's question in verse 8 is really a version of, I believe, help my unbelief which was the cry of another father in Mark chapter 9. God had just told Abram in verse 7 that he will possess the promised land. That's a new creation promise. The day will come when he is no longer a stranger and an exile in the land of Canaan. In fact, the day will come when Abram inherits the whole earth. But as Hebrews 11.13 later points out, Abram had to die first. He had to die in faith. In this present age, Abram did not receive the things promised. As Stephen says in Acts 7.5, Abram never owned, quote, even a foot's length of the promised land while he was living. But by faith, he saw it would be his, and he greeted it from afar. This is why he bought a burial cave from the Hittites in the land of Canaan. He was persuaded his offspring would one day possess the land, even if it was to be 400 years after his own death, 430, if you like precision. But Abram was also persuaded that he himself would possess it, not just his offspring. 
he was persuaded that after his death, God would somehow restore him to life and he would receive a promised land even better than Canaan, a new creation. In fact, the whole earth would be his. And this is all beautifully explained in Hebrews 11, verse 8 through 19, if you'd like to read it later today. So listen now, why didn't Abram return to his roots in Ur of the Chaldeans? Why didn't he go back? He could own land there. He could have the acceptance of his father's clan there. The man-made gods were visible there. The idols were easy to understand there, even manageable there. Why didn't Abram return to his roots in Ur, the Chaldeans? He did not return because the true and living God had called him out of death and condemnation into life. And in that gracious call to salvation, God gave Abram faith, and he also gave him the assurance of faith. And with the assurance of faith, you have an infallible persuasion that God is freely giving you all things in Christ, even the new creation. And this firm persuasion enlarges your heart toward endurance. Now, this assurance can be shaken. This assurance can be diminished. But God will see to it that it is never, ever extinguished. He will see to it that you never sink into utter despair. In fact, he has seen to it this morning in the scripture that's right before your eyes. As God gives assurance to Abram's faith here, he wants you to be assured as well. For you are children of Abram because you have the faith of Abraham. The Lord wants to give you the infallible persuasion that you are forgiven your sins that you are fully accepted in Christ, and that he freely gives to you the new creation. So look at, the, look at how the Lord answers Abram's question of doubt. Verse 8, the Lord calls for some animals. It's an interesting answer. <laughs> a heifer, Abram, a goat, Abram, a ram, a turtle dove, a pigeon, the animals that walk the earth are each to be three years old. That is, they are to be fully grown, mature animals of value. For the birds, no such designation is given. Now, these five specific animals are going to be identified later as the animals of sacrifice in the book of Leviticus. These will be the animals the priest handles and burns on the altar to make offerings for sin in the church of God. But here in Genesis 15, there is absolutely no evidence that they are burned up. Here the animals are only cut up. But notice something according to verse 10. It is Abram who already knows what to do with the animals. He knows that they need to be cut up. He knows something about the ceremony that the Lord is about to enact, even though it will not go quite the way Abram expects it to go. 
So Abram takes a sword and he cuts the animals in two, except the birds. Then what does he do? He lays each half of animal over against the other, the text says. Half of the heifer is over here, and the other half of the heifer is right across from that half. He does the same thing with all the other animals. When he is finished, Abram has created a path. He has created a trail of blood that goes down the middle between cut flesh. Now, Abram knows what the Lord wants. The Lord wants to enact a covenant. In the ancient world, this ritual of entering an agreement and then taking an oath through cut animals was very well known and is very well documented. Two parties to an agreement, also known as a covenant, would walk the path between the cut animals. And in this way, each party declared that if they failed to keep the terms of the covenant, if they failed to do their part, they should suffer the curse that has befallen the cut animals. They should be destroyed by the sword. That's what is involved in this oath-taking. Now, in the days of Jeremiah, something just like this is reported. The leaders of Judah, according to Jeremiah 34, had made a special covenant with God. They promised they would set their slaves free as the law required. They walked between the animal parts, but then these same leaders, these elite of Israel, refused to release their slaves. And here's what the Lord says to them. Jeremiah 34, 18. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The Lord is saying judgment is coming. The sword is coming against you. Now, in most of these bloody covenant ceremonies, it was just the lesser party who usually walked between the halves. The vassal would take the oath, but the primary king would not. A king, it was thought, had the resources to meet his obligations. So what is Abraham thinking after he arranges these animals? I suspect, beloved, that he is thinking God will tell him when to walk through the halves. If anything, it is Abram who is the vassal and not the Almighty. That's how things always go. The lesser party takes the bloody walk. He is thinking his own performance. Abram is thinking his own duties will somehow lead him to possess the promised land. But beloved, this would provide Abram absolutely no assurance to his faith. You see, there's always a key ingredient to the assurance of faith. Please do listen carefully. And if you know the Westminster Confession, you already have realized that I'm using almost every word and phrase from our Westminster Confession's language on the assurance of faith. I think I'm halfway through the words already. There is always a key ingredient to the assurance of faith, an essential ingredient without which you cannot have the assurance of faith. You may have true saving faith, 
but you may always suffer a lack of assurance because you are neglecting to look into this ingredient. What is it? Well, it can be stated in two words from the Westminster Confession even. Freely given. Freely given. Freely given. Now I've said it three times, one for each year of the heifer. Now I'll say it three times again, one for each year of the goat. No. What is, what is the ingredient? Freely given. Assurance only prospers in us believers when we are persuaded that God freely gives us all things in Jesus Christ. This is so important. God even made sure Abram was given faith before he was circumcised. Our religious performance does not earn God's love. Our religious performance does not earn the forgiveness of sins. Our religious performance does not earn eternal life. Our religious performance does not earn a new creation in the everlasting dominion of Jesus Christ. All these things are freely given to us, given not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And Paul presses this point home beautifully in Romans 4, 13, where he says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The assurance of that faith only prospers when the freely givenness of the new creation is pressed upon us by God himself. So Abram in Genesis 15, though he is a man of faith, he is thinking God is about to have him take some kind of oath. So he stays close to the carcasses. Verse 11, he is shooing away the vultures who want to steal and devour the meat. Now, in one sense, as we watch Abram do this with the vultures, he is showing his love for his future offspring, isn't he? Israel is represented by these animals. The vultures are like the enemy nations listed at the end of this chapter. Abram does not want them to ruin what God is doing. But on the other hand, Abram thinks his performance might be necessary to affect God's promise. He has to keep the vultures away. Look at him work. In this, he is a little like the prodigal son of Luke 15. Do you remember how that son planned to work his way back into his father's house? I will ask my father to treat me as one of his hired servants. Luke 15, 19. But instead, what happened? The father ran down the road to him and called him son and gave him everything freely. A fatted calf, a ring, new clothing. It was the father's grace in self-humiliation that won his son to the obedience of gratitude. Where is the father's self-humiliation? 
lifting up his long robes, bearing his legs, and running as a Jewish man to a prodigal son. That's the cross stamped on that scene. In a way, God is going to do the same thing right here with Abram. In verse 12, he puts Abram to sleep. Now, I know I have done the same work of God in my preaching. But the Lord is doing it on purpose. I do it by accident. The Lord puts Abram to sleep. And what comes to an end? The busy beaver chasing the vultures away. Abram, go to sleep. Abram, I don't need you to chase the vultures away. What I promise, I will perform. Rest now. Rest in me and see my salvation. And by the grace of self-humiliation, the Lord Yahweh will freely give Abram and his offspring all things. He will walk the bloody path alone. So look with me at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So Abram is over here somewhere in a nap under a deep brooding darkness. And that darkness is a testimony to the church of God that if we are going to put our works on display to help God complete what he has promised, we are inviting judgment upon us. It's a little foretaste in this darkness that has befallen upon Abram. Do not bring your works to this. Do not bring the law doing to this. I will do this by grace or else it cannot be done. But now the Lord passes through. Abram's over there sleeping, well away from the bloody, bloody path, and the Lord alone walks between the pieces of flesh. What is the Lord doing? What is he communicating to the church of God and to his servant Abram and his servant's offspring? Well, Zach Keel, I think, has stated it very well in an excellent book titled Sacred Bond. I commend it to you. He says, the Lord makes a unilateral covenant of promise and seals it with an oath. Unilateral, meaning by the party of one. It is a self-maledictory oath. There being nothing greater than God himself, God here swears against himself. He takes an oath to be cut off himself by the sword of wrath if it is necessary to deliver on the promises made to Abram and his offspring. And if you are Christ, beloved, then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to the promise, says Galatians 3.29. He takes this oath for your benefit, to strengthen your assurance of faith. God will perform, even to his own humiliation, all that needs to be performed to fulfill the promise of the new creation. Now, how do we know God himself is walking the bloody path? Well, we know this to be so because the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch are both well attested in scripture as representations of God's presence. 
This is a theophany. In particular, the firepot and the torch represent Yahweh's legs. The firepot makes an ascending column of smoke, assuming gravity worked the same way then as it does now. The pillar of cloud is that ascending column of smoke. The torch makes an ascending column of fire, a pillar of fire. 400 years later, after this scene in Genesis 15, 400 years later, when the Lord leads his people out of Egyptian slavery, which we call the Exodus, these same legs of Yahweh appear on the earth again. It is written in Exodus 13, 21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and night. The mighty legs of Yahweh, which are judgment to his enemies, but love to his friends, they are traveling upon the earth as his people travel upon the earth. And where are they going? Well, he is leading Abram's offspring to the earthly promised land, which, was, which is a foreshadowing of the new creation. He even says this in Leviticus 26, 12, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. So back to Genesis 15. What about these legs of Yahweh on the bloody path. Well, remember, this is a self-maledictory oath. The Lord is committing himself to be upon the earth and to be cut off by the sword for his people. Did this happen? Indeed it did. Isaiah foretold it. Speaking of Christ, Isaiah said, by oppression and judgment he was taken away He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of his people. Isaiah 53.8. Daniel foretold it. Daniel said, and after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Daniel 9.26. And when Jesus came, indeed, before his crucifixion, he even foretold it. It is written in Luke 22, verse 19, and he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after his death, the Apostle Paul wrote these words about our Savior to the church of Galatia. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Beloved, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took to himself a reasonable soul and a true body. He put legs upon the earth in human flesh so he could bear for us all the penalties that the law of God charges against our sinful human nature. He has performed himself everything that needed to be performed for us to be adopted as heirs of all that he is the heir of by his divine nature. He who has always been the son of God by nature has made us adopted sons through the grace of self-humiliation. This is your salvation. 
He freely gives you the new creation. And let me remind you about this. Abram was promised that he would be the heir of the world, Paul said, in Romans 4.13. The assurance that our faith needs is not just the assurance that our sins are forgiven. If that's the only assurance that we take to our heart, we are not taking a full and true assurance of faith. The assurance of our faith is that our sins have been forgiven and that we have been rewarded freely, given freely, the new creation. Now, if we only take to our heart the assurance that our sins are forgiven, we are going to pervert that and hustle back to Ur of the Chaldeans. The Lord is also giving us a new creation where the former things pass away and a new heaven and a new earth that is full of holiness and righteousness and the constancy of the angels shall be our dwelling place with God. Knowing that that is what he is also assuring us of, a true promised land sets in our hearts a desire for the habitat and culture of that coming new world, a world of holiness and righteousness. And we are assured that living a godly life is indeed the right way to live. And that by the power of he who has gone before us, we can. Now, let's take another look at what's happening in verse 17. Where is Yahweh walking to? What direction does this path point toward? This bloody path, beloved, created by these animal halves, is not pointing to Ur of the Chaldeans. The Lord is not taking Abram and his offspring back to Ur. This was not a grace so that Abram could return to his father's clan and take shelter among the idols and the lawlessness of the former world he left behind. Now, the bloody path was laid out and pointing to Jerusalem, the very city to which David went up into his bedroom three times a day and opened his windows and prayed toward. This bloody path was pointing to the promised land. God was not only offering his own offspring as the one who would atone for sin, he was offering his own offspring as the one who would walk his people to the promised land in their own flesh. So our assurance is not just that the former things will pass away, but also that all things will be made new. And let me press upon you one more time the true and necessary ingredient of assurance of faith that God, through Jesus Christ, freely gives. Freely gives to you the new creation where there is no sin, where there is no tear, where there is no pain, where there is no enemy of righteousness. He freely gives this to you, and you are already beginning to taste it in the church of Jesus Christ, but it shall fall upon you in its glorious consummation at the final day when he appears. And he's giving this all to you freely. You do not have to earn it. You do not have to perform to keep it. 
But when your faith is assured that it is yours freely, then you cannot but help yourself obey out of this gratitude that everything is given to you up front without strings attached. This is the salvation of Jesus Christ. So again, Paul says in Romans 4.13 that Abram has been promised to be heir of the world, he and his offspring, not according to the works of the law, but according to the righteousness that comes by faith. Beloved, this means that we receive what we could never be given if we only were given what was justly due to us. We are given what Christ alone has accomplished and what he has been humiliated to win for us. And he wants you to know it's yours. Will this change you? Will this reform your life? Will this set a blaze to your obedience? Will this change the way you pray? Will you now rise up in the strength of the new man, knowing that all that you could ever dream of wanting and receiving from God is already given to you in Jesus Christ? Oh, it should and it will if the Spirit of God has given you the assurance of your faith. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Lord, we pray and thank you for the life of our covenant father. We thank you that we indeed have the faith in Christ that he had, and this is your doing. Father, we pray that we would not think that life in Ur of the Chaldeans is our true heritage. Our true heritage is what you have promised to Abram, to Abraham. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not find the world and its offerings and its system to be that which we desire, but that we indeed would desire the better country, the new heaven, the new earth, where we indeed shall stand, where we indeed shall judge angels. Oh Lord, we pray that we would indeed rise up even now in the patterns and conduct and loves of a people who shall dwell there forever, who will boast in Jesus Christ, who has purchased title of that land for us by his blood, by the grace of his self-humiliation. We thank you and we praise you for him. May he indeed continue to shepherd us and bring us fully and completely to that which is ours. In Jesus' name, amen.